Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm here and very, very pumped to be across from Greg Fitzsimmons. It's it's very odd to be across from somebody who you sort of feel like you you started with, even though you didn't really start with because I'm, I'm much older than him. But I feel like he's cut from a tiny bit of the same path as mine because he did go to school at Boston University where I went to school and he did cut his teeth in the Boston comedy scene like I did. And as I sit across from him, what comes to my mind first, when you say the name Greg Fitzsimmons, two other words come to mind. Nice guy. There wasn't ever a situation that I ever recall in my entire life where I ever heard him say a disparaging word about anybody in public. And what happens when you're a comedian and you're starting out, and I don't know if this is true of other professions, but you get sucked in this world of hanging out. And comedy clubs are like, you know, uh, you, you, you ask them, hey, listen, can I get a spot? Well, you got to you got to hang out. You know, if you hang out and you're 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 with people, people see you around. And then if there's a cancellation, sometimes they put you in. And what happens when you get sucked into this thing, when you're hanging out, you're essentially hanging out with the majority of the comedians, I hope I'm not too cruel here, who are very dysfunctional. They're either uh, drinking in excess every night, they're doing everything from weed to much stronger things, Uh, they're chasing pussy whenever they can till four in the morning, and they're talking shit about the latest person who has an hour special, 
or who got a sitcom or got a big break. And you're thrust into this world as a young comic and also as a growing comic because you're sitting there and you almost feel like you're in a schoolyard because if you don't comment on the things that are going on and say something and interject something, you might feel like the next time you come up, you're not allowed at the table. And I've been at those tables a lot. And I personally was a guy who got my ass handed to me in these tables many, many times while I was there and when I wasn't there. And I wouldn't mind throwing barbs out left and right and roasting people and doing that, that thing at the table because I guess that's just a back and forth that I enjoyed. If I was going to take the shot, I was going to give it back. But I've been at those tables with Greg Fitzsimmons, and I've been around him at the comedy clubs coming up, and I've also seen him in New York when I was doing my club in New York. And I never once heard Greg Fitzsimmons ever say anything bad about anybody. He navigated the world very, very well. And this is what was odd for me, um, and I want to share this with you because I'm going to bare my soul here. Because Greg Fitzsimmons was such a kind soul and had he might have had a darkness to him that he was pushing down, but the point was is no one ever saw this side of him that maybe he showed other people or a best friend or something, but he was always a great guy. And consequently, I had noticed throughout the comedy scene that normally the great guys and the guys who were chasing pussy and the guys who were doing the drugs and doing things were the ones that seemed to be getting the breaks. And it didn't make sense to me because all through my life I was taught, listen, straight and narrow, work hard, work hard on your craft as much as you can uh, and enjoy it, but don't enjoy it too much because you just got to keep going and fight. But I was seeing people who were waking up at the crack of noon, smoking a bag of weed a day, getting movies, television shows, hour specials. So there was a point in time where I actually left myself in terms of how my philosophy was. And I thought, you know, OK, well, it's pretty clear that uh, nice guys don't make it in this business. And when I looked at Greg Fitzsimmons, I thought to myself, God, this guy's got great material. He's a great guy. But is he ever going to make it? How's he going to make it when he doesn't chase pussy all night long? He doesn't shit on people. He doesn't do drugs. And so I, I always looked at you, and I'm sitting across from you telling the truth. I always looked at you as the underdog, as a guy who I truly didn't know if you could possibly navigate this world with all this craziness and all these different kinds of people and make it work. And I was wrong because you did. And then when I started seeing you on things like Letterman, which for those of you listening and you don't know this, I don't care what anybody tells you. Letterman is the gold standard of stand-up comedy. I don't care if you have a half-hour special on Comedy Central. I don't even care if you have an hour special on Comedy Central. If you don't have a Letterman on your resume, then that says something. That says something that the validation stamp of comedy, who is David Letterman, it, it, you know, it, it means that there's something missing there that should be there or, or hasn't been there yet. 
And that may change the way the landscape is with Fallon and with Seth Myers and the new people coming in. But to me, that was always the case. So when Greg did Letterman for the first time, and I remember watching it, and you don't know that I watched it, I, I was like, holy shit. And I always say it's all about the holy shit moments. And to me, when I saw that set, I said to myself, it's over. I mean, this guy does not have to do anything. He doesn't have to prove himself anymore, which is not true because you always have to prove yourself. But I'm talking about in the comedy world, from that point forward, in my mind, you were anointed and no one could ever take anything away from you ever again. And at that moment, sadly, and I'm bearing my soul here, I gained so much respect for you as a comedian, as a man, and with what you were doing. And I never had another doubt about you ever going to take it to the next level again. So in the scheme of the shortest cold open I've ever done in my life, I just want to say one thing. It does pay to be a nice guy. As Carol Leifer would say when Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld were hiring writers. They shunned every single writer who had every credit in the world. They didn't want anybody that was tainted by the system. And later on, they told her what they wanted. And what they wanted was an easy hang. And Greg Fitzsimmons is an easy hang. And in the beginning, when I saw all these people making it and doing all these great moves in the business and movies and TV and doing all these things that I thought were against the grain and not what was going to take them to the next level, I realize now 10, 20 years later, as I think about all those people, it's a long fucking race. And a lot of those people went home. But Greg Fitzsimmons... He didn't go home. So my lesson today is stay the course, do great work, be a nice guy, and everyone will want to work with you. Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Now I'm on the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. <laughs> Here we go. You fucking firing me up, cats. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. I'm going to introduce my guest today, who I'm really pumped to have here. I'm really excited. It means a lot that he's here. And and believe it or not, uh, you might say to yourself, uh, are there certain guests that you continually try to have on the show and sometimes you don't get to have them on the show when you think you're going to have them on the show? And this guy is a guy I've wanted on the show probably for the past nine months. And uh, I'm, I'm just honored that he's finally here because uh, he's so busy and he's doing a lot of different things. And also, I would imagine, and he'll explain later if this is the case, that sometimes it's daunting 
for me, and I don't know if it is for him to sit across from somebody who you've known a long time and who's on the other side of the fence and you don't know what you're going to talk about, but I can guarantee you today is going to be very inspiring. So let me tell you a little bit about Greg Fitzsimmons. He was born in New York City and he launched his career in stand-up while attending my alma mater, Boston University. He has appeared on Late Show with David Letterman and many, many other late-night talk shows, which led to a gig hosting MTV Network's game show Idiot Savants beginning in 1996, which I believe he won a Cable Ace Award for. In 1998, he landed his first Comedy Central Presents special, and in 2003, he joined The Man Show and The Ellen DeGeneres Show as a writer, both in uh, 2003. In 2006, he began writing for Louis C.K.'s television series Lucky Louie on HBO, and then he launched The Greg Fitzsimmons Show on Howard Stern's satellite radio channel, Howard 101 for which today I believe he still has a show on that network. In 2010, he released his book, Dear Mrs. Fitzsimmons, Tales of Redemption from an Irish Mailbox. And in 2013, he saw him release his debut album, Life on Stage. He's hosted a number of different uh, radio shows on Howard Stern's network. When I say that, I mean he's done so many different episodes of Howard Stern's show. I think he's done over 50. He started a podcast called Fitz Dog Radio, which is always in the top 50 in the world in comedy. It's an amazing podcast. If you have not listened, please, please do. Uh, some notable things about Greg. He is the winner of the jury award for best comedian from the HBO Comedy and Arts Festival. Um, he'll have a new stand-up special premiering on Comedy Central this year. And he has a new series on True TV this fall called How to Be a Grown-Up. He's appeared in Louis on FX, and he's been a frequent panelist on Chelsea Lately, The Adam Carolla Show, The Bob and Tom Show. And it should be noted uh, I think one of the most important things that he sort of downplays, I think, is the fact that Greg is a four-time Emmy Award-winning writer-producer, which he got that award for The Ellen DeGeneres Show. And when you can sit across from somebody in comedy who's won four Emmy Awards, you can count those people on half a hand. So, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today. Very excited. Greg Fitzsimmons. Jesus, I did all that? <laughs> My God, I must have been doing this shit a long time. Well, thank you, Barry. No problem. Thank you. Thank you very much. Well, I, you know, that's funny because uh, I I talked shit, but I think I did it in, uh, I mean, like you said, you, you if you want to seat at the table, you got to engage, you know, you have to critique, you have, uh, it, but I think in, I think if you're honest about it, you can tell when somebody's lashing out because they're bitter and that's a sign of failure and people don't respect you for that. But when you're going out, like to me coming out of Boston and the great comics that came out of there, you know, Nick DiPaolo and Louie and Bill Burr and all, all the guys that were around when I was coming up, it was about the pure form of doing stand up. And when somebody wasn't doing it that way, it was an affront to everybody and the art form. And so I would go after those people, but I would do it to their face you know, I've told people straight up, and I won't mention names because some of those people have gone on to become real comedic voices. They just started out as doing it the cheap way, and uh, they were derivative, and they were people that were up industry's ass 
in particular became targets of the other comedians because New York was not about, if you said, if you referred to yourself as my career, people would shit on you for 20 minutes. You didn't have a career. You did stand up. You tried to get stage time. You tried to do new shit. You tried to take the audience as far as you could. And you tried to do as many spots as you could. It was not about getting a development deal or even going to LA. I remember Mark Marin. I said I was going out to LA for pilot season and he, and he pulled my lips apart and he goes, let's see your teeth turn around. <laughs> and it was like, yeah, that's how you were treated. It's so weird. You said that. Like I remember Bill Burr, one of his first routines was talking about his name, Bill Burr. What does that sound like? Tim Burr. Remember that? All those right, jokes? right. And so explain to our audience, because I think it's important for those who aren't stand up comedians to understand what doing the right thing in comedy is to a certain group of people like yourself and Louie and Mark Marin and Bill Burr and what derivative means. I think it's really simple. It comes down to, are you doing it from the inside out or the outside in? Are you figuring out what the audience wants and then serving that up to them? Or do you have your own sort of, you know, what's your gut reaction to life and can you put it out there and connect it to the audience? Can, can you get the tools necessary to um, bring yourself out? To, to you know to express yourself in your truest form or are you pandering I, th I think it's really that black and white and by black and white I mean the white guys do it that way <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you at the trial and not on Nightline hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success it's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one -on -one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. I, you know, I'm curious about this because I, I want to go someplace with you and I hope you'll go there with me. You may not. Can you maybe tell me somebody, maybe it's somebody from the past and you don't want to say somebody today. Tell me somebody who's like, riding the line like they're just they're it's like half of what they do you're like my god that's so unbelievable and then half of what they do might be pandering it might not be somebody today it could have been somebody from the past who never knew which way to go and and it felt like they were they were sort of in both worlds has oh, there Jesus. been anybody like that yeah i mean what do you what do you set me up for barry i mean it's like 
Like, I'll give you an example. I'll go someplace yeah. right now, okay? And I said this on a previous podcast, and she'll probably come over here with her 85 pounds and knock me out. I talk about Letterman being the validation stamp. Yeah. There's a young woman who did Letterman about two years ago, Ali Wong. Sure. Okay? Did a tremendous set on Letterman. Did a great job. You know, would I say that 100% of the jokes that she did on that set were in the Louis C.K. Uh, format or that kind of thing? Probably not, but a high percentage. She did a tremendous job. She'd be very proud about it. I go to the improv one night, and I'm just hanging out, and I notice that she's closing a show there. And the last 15 to 20 minutes of the show is just basically moisture jokes about her vagina, her fingers in her vagina, what it looks like, all this kind of stuff, killing with it. Killing with these jokes, swearing a little bit, but very, very blue material. And I'm thinking to myself... What's going on? You just did the validation stamp of comedy. This is what people recognize you for. This is where you're going to get your respect. This is what you're going to build on. And then you go and do your longer set, and you're doing blue material. So I feel she's somebody who's riding the line and also somebody who proved that she can book significant acting jobs, which is very, very rare for a stand-up comedian to do. So not only did she prove herself as a young artist before 10 years to get Letterman, but also to book the acting job. So that's somebody I'm going to go on a limb and say is riding the line between great stuff sometimes and pandering a little the well, other Well, I way. think it's tough because... Um you know, I definitely like to to me, Carlin was the greatest comic. And one of the things I liked about him was that he could do really astute political commentary. He did characters and he was always true to who he was. I mean, you know, whether he was like Zippy the Weatherman or whether he turned into a hippie and then later on critiquing the Catholic Church and then becoming an environmentalist. Whatever was in his heart and his head was what he expressed on stage. And part of that was doing shit and fart jokes. And they were, to me, they were just as valid because that's where his mind went. And I think if you really are honest, I do shit jokes in my act and I know I get judged for it. You know, like, like Neil Brennan was in the back of the room at the Laugh Factory recently and he was talking about talking about having seen Damon Wayans because I, I, I consider Damon one of the most underrated comics in the business. He his is, hour special about 15 years ago or 20 years ago was just unbelievable. But still, he's out at clubs doing new shit about, and he's honest about it. He talks about his kid growing up rich and trying to act like he's a thug and, you know, stuff that is, he's not still trying to be the guy he used to be. He's current. And Neil said, yeah, yeah, he was great. But then, you know, he did this bit about how you wash your ass and it still smells like ass. And and I and he goes and it just was all and I lost all respect. And I was just like, I don't I think that if you if you let it all out, including I mean, to me, it's like stand up should be if I'm hanging out with Bill Burr and Louis C.K. and whoever, we're going to talk about we're going to do AIDS jokes about each other's mothers and we're going to do diarrhea jokes. And we're also going to probably talk about some really smart shit. So I don't I don't consider that pandering um, unless you think that that's what the audience wants to hear. And that's what you need to do to get their approval. I think that to express blue material in a way that's authentic to you, that's valid. And I'm 
uh, I wouldn't say I'm guilty of it. I do that, and I, f- I fucking love it. I have a joke about a guy from Whole Foods taking a shit and wanting to watch him because it is probably like ballet. It like barely has to push. There's no smell. It's just It comes out like Harbor Seal pups diving in the water, no splash. And then I describe taking a shit myself, and there's a lot of wiping. And, you know, you're checking the wipes as you go. First two, I don't even look at the first two. Those just go straight. Like, so, I mean, that's to me, I fucking love doing that material more than I like doing a joke about, you know, some environmental issue because it's just, it just feels like it comes right out. You know, it's a release of things that you can't really talk about, but there's truth in them. Well, it's interesting you said that. Louis C.K. and Dane Cook, one of their biggest beefs that became public of the 92 seconds of material that uh, Louis never defended uh, Dane and said he didn't right. take it. Right. So when he could have done that. So look, I love Louis. I'm my first client ever. I've, I've, I, I, I think the world of him and, right. and what he, what he did for me one Christmas, which I might share with you is one of the, probably one of the greatest moments of my life. And uh, you're a Jew, so that's huge. It's huge. Well, Jesus was a Jew at some point in time until uh, somebody converted him. He hated the Jews. He did hate the Jews? Okay. I'll try to remember. He hated them as he was hanging from the cross, probably. Yeah. But the... the That was, I think, the the moment he re, really sunk in. I think before that, you could call him anti-Semitic, but I think the hatred of the Jews was on that third nail. <laughs> I think when the dice came out, that's when he really was like, hey, those are my garments, motherfuckers. And that's when the garment industry really started with the Jewish people. Oh. <laughs> and that's why it was called Shmata, or was it the... He just out-Jewed me. Sorry. I don't know what Shmata is. I'm sorry, I lost my way. I, uh, I'm just honored that you actually laughed at something I said. <laughs> that was the first time. I'm a sucker for Yiddish. I mean, yeah. I, I spent a lot of time at the Friars Club in New York. And if French is the language of love, Yiddish is the language of comedy. <laughs> it certainly is. What I was going to say was one of the bits that Dane and Louis got in an altercation about was probably a 20-second bit on itchy asshole. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> They're fighting over a joke, itchy asshole. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah, and I just saw, you know, and the thing, yeah, you can write the same bits. I just saw... Um, one of the other bits was about seeing a guy ride a bicycle down the street and a car door opens and how you react in that split second. Uh-huh. And then um, I just saw, I'm not going to say who it is, a very famous comedian do the exact same bit. And I wanted to pull him aside and go, whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> this could end your career. Because, I mean, <laughs> that bit, I mean, whatever that 90 seconds is, I mean, it, like with Carlos Mencia, there was... I think that hurt that hurt Dane tremendously. Tremendously. Because, because Louis, uh, you know, and, and I'm speaking freely, I'm just saying factually what happened. Louis never went on record and said, everybody, calm down. We all do stuff that's similar. This is 90 seconds. Look, my bit about the the names and the, the sound effects of the names. Look, Steve Martin did a similar thing. You know, we all think of little things. You know, he has about seven hours material. I have about seven hours of material. I don't think we're going to, like, uh, I don't think his career has been made from 90 seconds, and neither will mine. But he didn't go out and, and do that. As a matter of fact, he went on. 
a show at Largo and actually read a letter that Dane sent to him, a passionate letter, just, you know, asking him to, I don't want to get into the details of it, but if you were there that night, you would have. So the fact is, is that that happened and it did damage Dane's, Dane's career. And if you do something like that, if the right comics who are in that world don't stand up for you, um, it can really take a, take a hit. Then it takes a while to overcome that and so i remember one time i was uh watching a show this was crazy i you know not watching a show but you know sometimes in la you just you go to one one club to the other they're two miles apart you go to the improv the laugh factory the comedy store and it was the night or there was the day that i think george bush i i think there was some kind of legislation about uh trying to get passed about building a wall uh, on the um, sort of border of Arizona to uh, keep the illegal Mexican people out. That was the premise of what was happening that day. And at three different clubs... Oh, I know exactly the joke you're going to tell. I saw Paul Rodriguez, yep. uh, George Lopez... Carlos Mencia. And Carlos Mencia do the same exact joke that night. Who do you think's going to build it? Who's going to build the wall? Right. That's right. Well, you know, George Lopez threw Carlos against the wall at the Laugh Factory. <laughs> I think I was there that night. Yeah, there was an actual physical fight about how much material he felt he was taking from him. I don't think there was any fight. I think I just saw feet about a, a foot from, right. the, from the ground. right. Right. And I mean, you talk about a career going away fast. I mean, Jesus Christ, Carlos was the number one Latino comic in the country when he had that show on Comedy Central. He was selling out the Nokia Theater and that he shot a special in Dallas at a place that held like, you know, 30,000 people. Yeah. And I see the dude's picture up in clubs. I'm working now. I mean, that's a big fall. And it's incredible because it was all based on Joe Rogan and him one night. At the uh, comedy store. One night. It was caught on video and put up. And you talk about a guy's career disappearing, and that's the power of the internet now. Because the same thing happened with Louie and Dane. It would not have been a story if it was not blogged about and chat-roomed about to death. And then the other side of the coin, the power of the internet in the positive way, is a guy who you mentioned in this podcast who was pounding the pavement for probably 10 12 13 years who booked his first acting job ever and then didn't book another acting job after that and was trying to get a name for himself but some strange opening anthony show in philadelphia somebody has a phone in the crowd and they hey. film him bombing and then they film him coming back the last five minutes and killing shitting on them in the city of philadelphia and bill burr that was his entrance hey. and that took that was the thing he needed, the one thing he needed to take his voice to the next level. And when he was ready to take it to the next level, boy, was he ready to take it to the next level. And he's amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's it's amazing how fast you can and how and I think what that also points out is how it's not in your control. People think, you know, managers tell their clients, well, you got to make viral videos. You got to make some vines. You got to do a podcast. Well, if doing vines is not something that you're comfortable doing and you don't have the skill set for, you're wasting your time. You know, the girl that brought me to the dance is stand up. So I focus on that. And then doing a podcast came out of me doing a radio show on Howard Stern's channel. So I just I just started doing another hour afterwards and it felt right. It felt like I love sitting and talking to people. I mean, it's like, you know, this 
you get to sit down for an hour, hour and a half with somebody that is compelling to you enough that you invited them on. A lot of times it's a friend. you, And you're used to grabbing snippets of five minutes of conversation in a club before somebody interrupts or you're at a, you're at a premiere party or, or you're whatever. You're never really talking. I mean, our cell phones are both off and we are looking at each other like a couple of queers and we're having a real conversation. And that's so invaluable. So that's that's what struck a chord for me. I don't know if, you know, Marin's turned into lightning in a bottle. Corolla's already was because he had a big broadcasting career. But you look at how things can explode podcast has been great for me. I'm making a really nice living from it, but it certainly hasn't put me in the stratosphere of Corolla. It could with one podcast. You know, I don't know who that guest might be, but something might happen that goes viral and all of a sudden you can go to that next level. And that's the thing about the internet. You can't choreograph it. You can't map it out. You can just find the way that puts you in a position where it's showing your strengths and then you hope that somehow traction comes the way it did with Bill Burr, the way um, MySpace worked for Dane Cook, the way, um, uh, what's the kid's name at the improv that he does tons of videos. Um, anyway, that's not my thing. So I don't, but I think it's about, um, you know, being yourself, doing quality work and the rest takes care of itself. But when you try to control it by saying, I'm going to, put my shit like I see these young comics plugging their fucking Facebook account during their set and handing out business cards afterwards and it's like you're gross you just and your your act is shit your whole act is pandering it's all like oh I'm Asian so I'm gonna do an Asian voice because that's what you're expecting from me it's like yeah, stop fucking wasting everybody's time on stage. That's valuable stage time. I agree with that. I never... Now, granted, when I was... By the way, there was not a reference to Ali Wong, who I love. I'm thinking of this guy, just to clarify. <laughs> I won't say his name. I knew that. This is the thing about that. I, I never understand when people give out stuff after their shows or give out cards. And I'll tell you why I, I don't understand it. Because... I understand it in the 70s when Aerosmith were in Harvard Square giving out flyers because that's all you had. You didn't have the internet. But people will find you. If they see you and they love you, they will track you down like your ass is on fire and they will fucking find you. They don't need you mentioning, hey, check me out on Facebook or a card or whatever. They will figure it out. They're, they have their phone with them. They'll just type their name into their text. They enjoy the search. It's and like they a enjoy the hunt. search and they enjoy finding that person. So you don't have to give out flyers or do anything like that. And the problem is a lot of comedians who start rising, they think it's because of the flyers. It's just actually because of the content. And there isn't anybody that I know in comedy. I always, I always say this and probably they, they might bore a lot of people, but... Singers can get standing ovations anywhere in the country and they may never make it. If you're a comedian and you're, I don't care if in like uh, Hong Kong in like strip bar doing comedy, if you're doing 
comedy like George Carlin, people will find you and you will be a huge star. I say that all the time. It's a meritocracy. And I say it to young kids that are saying to me, I got to try to get representation. (laughs) If if I get a manager, then this will happen. If I can get on a star search or whatever, uh, uh, What's what's that show? Uh, uh, last last comic standing. Then I'll make. It's like no asshole. All you got to do is do good comedy because there's a need for it. This business, I mean, comedy besides porn is the number one thing on the internet. You look at the amount of com- and comedy and porn is together is, yeah. is actually oh, number we're, one. We're we're meant to be together. You know what is a punchline but a bukkake <laughs> shot to the face. <laughs> And it's really like... I've never been across from anybody who actually pronounced that in front of me. Thank you. Well, I hosted the Porn Awards <laughs> oh, twice. okay. So yeah. I, know, I know my way around that world. <laughs> and uh, it's true. You, you, if you are doing good comedy, and it's like every time I hit a little, you know, uh, slow spot in my career and you start to get scared or frustrated, just write some shit and go out to the clubs and work on your acts. And all of a sudden, stuff just pops up. Absolutely. Now, do you mind if I just do something right now? Oh, because Jesus Christ. Just don't look me in the eye while you're doing it and don't play with my balls. Okay, I won't do that. All right, so what I'd like to do is I'd like to go way, way back, if Let's you go don't back. mind, in the way back machine. I want to find out what kind of environment you were living in uh, in New York City where you were born or grew up or however that was. And what was your first vision that you wanted to be in the entertainment business. What was it that said to you, that spoke to you, like, hey, I want to be in comedy or I want to Well, my dad was one of the top uh, radio announcers in New York City my whole life. So he was like one of the... One of the guys that, you know, you walk down the street and people go, hey, Fitzy, you know, and we had season tickets to the Giants and the Mets and everybody knew him. And we'd go to Ratazzi's, which is like the restaurant that Mad Men always refers to going to. And he had his own table and it was it was hot shit. You know, he drove a Lincoln Town car and we just kind of like. I'd go see him do benefit shows where he did a lot of benefit shows. Now, now explain to our audience what a radio announcer was. Well, he hated being called a disc jockey. But this is back when talk radio, before talk radio was displaced by syndicated formatted radio. And it was like podcasting. You know, he would have guests on. Mayor Koch used to call in every single day. And uh, he would have in, you know, comedians, the Clancy brothers, Frank Sinatra, and and they would just talk. And so he was a real personality. And so he loved putting on a tuxedo and going and doing a benefit show where he got to do 15 minutes of what you would call stand up. But it wasn't stand up. It was, you know how it is when you MC a dinner. It's like, it's like his best stories, shitting on a few people. And if he had been born 20 years later, he would have been doing what I did. And he would have gone into stand-up. So I can remember the first time I got on stage, besides being an avid joke teller as a little kid, I read, I had subscriptions to every comic book. I was reading Art Buckwald books when I was like eight (laughs) years old, like anything funny, Bill Cosby books. And uh, when when I was about... 
11 years old, there was a swim team that I was on and I was so bad at swimming that they put me into the nine and under group, even though I was 11 and I, and they would give everybody a plaque, you know, just they find a reason to give you a plaque at the awards dinner. And I got like, you know, fourth place in breaststroke in the, in the uh, nine and unders and everybody would go up and the, uh, the swim coach would announce your name and you'd shake his hand and take the plaque. And I went up to get my third place, fourth place, uh, breaststroke. And I grabbed the mic out of his hand and I started thanking everybody in the room, including Ronald Reagan and uh, my parents and the other kids on the team. And I did like a five minute spoof of acceptance awards at 11 at, at 11 years old. And I mean, every time there was a live microphone in a venue, I picked it up and I talked into it and I told jokes and I spent all my teen years going to the comic strip and the comedy cellar and watching guys like Paul Reiser and Richard Belzer and Rick Crome and, uh, you know, just guys that were the staples in those clubs and we knew their acts. And, you know, I had one buddy in particular, Frank Moretti, and we uh, that's what we did at night. Wow, that's incredible. I had no idea that you... Uh started looking at comedy when you were that young. How did you get into the clubs? Um, well, I did a high school talent show when I was a senior, and uh, there was some drugs involved and some drinking, and my microphone was unplugged halfway through my set by the principal because I was shitting on all the teachers. <laughs> and I got the bug. I mean, I remember walking out the door of the auditorium after that and literally jumping up and down like I just won the Super Bowl. My head almost flew off my shoulders. It was so intense. And I just knew. And so I went to BU and um, I did some college comedy contests. And uh, I did. I won a couple of those contests. Did you? Yes. It was always like certs. I got to open for Franken and Davis because I uh, won one of them. No shit. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I. Uh, I think I won one of them, but um, but I was I, my first actual time in a club was Stitches Comedy Club, which was on Commonwealth Avenue. And for those of you who don't know the Boston comedy scene, uh, Stitches opened up after there were a couple of comedy clubs there called the Comedy Connection, which was at the Charles Playhouse on Warrington Street, and Nick's Comedy Stop, which opened thereafter on Warrington Street. And I had a club called Play It Again Sam's later on. But Stitches was the premier place because it was a really classy rock and roll club tied to the promoter, Don Law, who was in the area. And I think he owned a piece of it as well as uh, the people who owned all the clubs on Lansdowne Lansdown, Street. Right. I think it was the Lions Brothers or something like right. that. And so you had this beautiful, beautiful rock and roll club, a 500-seat rock and roll club in the back where, you know, you could go see Sinead O'Connor coming into town or Carly Simon doing a show or even... Black 47. Yeah, just amazing. The first time people coming in, like if Lana Del Rey was starting her first thing, that's where you would go see her. Of course, you don't, wouldn't see her there now. But, but the point being, but in the front room, they had the comedy club. And it, technically speaking... It wasn't set up well as a comedy no. club. No, um, They tried to make it this new wave or new age kind of place where the stage was indented in the wall. But I'll tell you something about the club that was the most innovative thing about it that I loved so much. And there was a show there, and I hate to digress here, but I think this is really cool to talk you about. You hate to digress? Yes, because I, well, I, don't, hate to, I, I don't hate to digress, yeah. but I hate to do it in front of you. Yeah. 
I have digressed throughout uh, my whole career. Frankly. Right, uh, right. But that's uh, you need to progress. I need to progress. That's another story. But um, <laughs> but Stitches was a place that would. This is twenty five years ago. They had a screen that came down on a show called The Sweeney Meanie Show, which was Steve Sweeney and Kevin Meanie. And these two guys hosted a show together on Wednesdays. It was always sold out. The greatest comedians would work on these shows, from Lenny Clark to Stephen Wright. Kenny Rogerson. Kenny Rogerson, Jack Gallagher, Bobcat Goldthwait. Just amazing, amazing stand-up performances. And at the end of the show, Meanie and Sweeney sometimes, and then later on Meanie alone, and then Anthony Clark took over him, the screen would come down and there would be a cameraman with a long cord, not a wireless camera, a cord that like went like, it seemed like it went like 25 to 50 yards. And they would just go out on the street. And when I say out on the street, not just out on the street, but out on the road, they'd be stopping cars. He got on a bus at one point. got on a bus. I don't even know how he did it. Yeah. And it would be beamed inside the club. So you'd be outside watching sometimes as a comedian the doorway and seeing them do the piece and inside hearing the laughter of the crowd. And it was like something that you'd never seen technologically. And me walking around going, what are you doing walking around with the tight pants? (laughs) That's not right. We're big pants people. That's right. I mean, he just had this tone of talking to people. I I would say in my life, nobody has ever made me laugh as hard on stage. When Kevin Meany is in his stride, second to none. It's incredible. And you don't and the thing is is that one of the things that we talk about, and I'm going to go back to your first thing on stage. One of the things we talk about a lot is is the pandering thing, and 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 the, and 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 Kevin Meany. This is so great that we talked about this. Kevin Meany broke the rule of pandering because he did like a a heightened character of himself that actually not only pandered to himself. But in the meantime, pandered to the audience in yeah, this weird singing and dance, singing and dance. He was the he knew he was he was doing a comedy act that he knew was pandering, but it was intelligent pandering. Well, yeah. And then he would then he would disassociate from it and start singing. I don't care. That's right. Like He would pretend he's pandering and then literally sing to the audience. I don't care. My what, jokes what, don't go uh, over. I don't care. That's right. I'm happy. Go lucky. Women call me pluck, pluck, plucky. I don't care. <laughs> then he'd start going, meow, 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 meow. He would sing the song in dog and cat, like literally saying, I don't give a fuck. You know all that stuff, all that singing, dancing? That was a joke. This is for me. Yeah, it was incredible. And 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 respected comedians who did great, great, hardcore planting their feet in front of the microphone set up and joke loved him right and one of the few guys that did that kind of an act where people loved him and he just was because they knew he was on the inside looking out as you said Mm. as opposed to the outside looking in i think that's how you worded it so your first set was on at stitches did you kill as hard as you did when you were 11 i had a lot of shills there was there was some (laughs) friends from from college you know who came out I was a freshman. It was the day that the uh, Chicago Bears beat the New England Patriots in the Ouch. Super Bowl. 
So it was a dark, dark day. It was three nothing at one point. It was one of the biggest upsets in Super Bowl history. And I mean, in a town where the Patriots, a win or a loss dictated the mood of the entire city. And I, I didn't give a shit. I was on stage at Stitches, the club that I'd been going to. You know, I started as a freshman at BU, and it was literally this, the club shared an alley with my dorm. And I was just there every night watching these shows. Wait, so you were in the same dorms that I started? Sleeper. I was in Sleeper. I no was in shit. room 404 in I was Sleeper. in 303. Unbelievable. That's insane. Holy shit. Yeah. So we would basically, and, and they're giant buildings, three giant buildings, Sleeper, Rich, and Claflin. Overlooking the field, uh, the football right. field. Right, they're 14 stories high. And it was crazy, the partying and the sex and you're you're not out in the suburbs. You're in you're in Boston. And I don't you, remember those uh, times, frankly, because I, I guess I was a wallflower. I didn't really get oh, much action. I'm sorry. It was good. It was a good time. It was okay. Yeah, and so so I had some shills. I have it on tape, and I'm embarrassed when I listen to it. I would literally never play it for anybody. It was a lot of like jokes that I'd heard at the Friars Club growing up, like set up like jokes from the point of view of an old Jew, and I didn't know. I was just telling them. So what you're saying is in your first set, you were derivative. Very derivative. Got it. Yes. It took me a while to not be derivative. So how did you learn how to do the right thing? Kevin Meany was like a mentor to me. He grew up He grew up in the next town over from me in New York. And my father belonged to a golf club. And Kevin was a waiter at the golf club. And so he knew my dad was in show business. That explains the bow ties he wore. Exactly. No, seriously. He was in the food service industry. He went to he went to cooking school. He went to the culinary institute in New York. So he was he would come to the table and he would do his impressions uh, for my dad and everybody. And he would sing this song when he introduced the desserts. He'd, he'd sing the cheese boat, the cheesecake boat is coming. Hurrah. And he would do a whole fucking song for them. And so my father got Kevin on stage his very first time at catch a rising star in New York. That was his first set. And so when I was in college, my father said, do you remember that waiter, Kevin from the golf club? And I go, yeah, of course, Kevin. I mean, I was 11, 12 years old. And so this is the place where I made the speech on the swim team. And so he goes, well, look him up. He's a big comedian now because I had just started doing comedy. And I went to Catch a Rising Star in Boston. And he in killed- Harvard Square. In Harvard Square. And he killed like, like literally belly, and people say that, but belly aching, wiping tears, relentless. Think of a Def Jam crowd when you watch it as a comedian's on who's killing, and that's what it was like watching Kevin Go online and look at his first appearances on Carson. He was one of those guys that went on and then got called back six times in the first year, and Carson's forehead is on the desk and he is pounding the desk. He's wiping tears when Kevin comes over to the desk. Yeah, and Kevin was one of the few guys. There was a weird thing that happened is with Kevin. He did his first Tonight Show and Johnny wasn't there. And he got called over to the couch, I believe, on that performance. I don't know if it was Leno or if it was somebody else. And then Carson saw it and brought him back, like similarly how Stephen Wright was brought right. back like five days later. Right. 
and still killed there and brought him to the couch. And the beauty is he will, he always worked clean, so he was ready to do TV sets. Yeah. So anyway, um, I walked up to him after the show, and he immediately went, Fitzsimmons, like recognized <laughs> me from when I was a kid. And that was it. He would bring me on the road, and uh, we spent a lot of He was in my wedding party when I got married. He's one of my closest friends in the world. And uh, he had a big influence on me. He gave me a lot of guidance on how to do it and um, and just watching him, seeing seeing, you know, Get just the spirit of what he was doing, I think, was uh, very much infected the way I did my stand-up. So were you li- like, were you living out of college? Like, where were you living? What kind of job did you have to pay the bills? Like, how was your situation before you started breaking well, through? I mean, I did stand-up that first time, and then I didn't really do it. My, I think I probably did it three or four times in college after that. And then my senior year, I started going out like regularly i was in in class during the day and then out at the clubs me and joe rogan started like the same week and we were just banging around we drive to providence one night we drive to worcester the next night maine the next night i mean working for you booked the gig so you knew what they paid i know i mean it would be like there's this running joke about you that i'm sure you've heard (laughs) but the audience probably hasn't heard it well this is this is the uh quintessential barry katz story Barry Katz calls up Frank Santarelli, and he goes, uh, uh, by the way, just to preface this, for those of you who don't know, I did a little bit of stand-up. I, I hosted some shows, but then I started my own company where I would book, because I thought there was a dearth of that, and, I, and so I booked all these one-nighters all across New England, and at one point in time, I had like about 50 one-nighters, and it was a real pipeline for comedians to get work. And Barry's office was the <laughs> basement of a student slum in all and Barry walked around no shoes just in his socks yeah I ne- no I had bare feet I never I never I never wore shoes in the office I didn't I didn't want to wear shoes right no. and he had uh, this woman Nina working for him who slaved for you I love Nina she chain smoked and booked comedy like an animal and then you walked around like king shit and you just schmoozed comics who would come by king shit in the basement king shit in the basement and you booked these gigs a lot of them were real hell hell rooms and it would and so here was the standard call frank barry Katz. i got a gig for you in northern maine it's five and a half hours you gotta pick up the headliner there's no hotel room and it pays 50 bucks you want it? Long pause. Frank goes, yeah, I'll do it. Barry says, it's canceled. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, shit. That brings back horrible memories. <laughs> yeah, like I used to book all these crazy gigs. I remember one time I booked this gig you mentioned Frank Santarelli. I booked Frank Santarelli, Ed Regine, and Julie Barr on a um now Julie Barr was like a probably six foot tall but really wonderful uh woman who was doing comedy, but not really that strong at the time. Ed Regine, who was like a... The Machine. Ed the Machine machine, Regine. One of the... As far as audience response was uh, concerned in these gigs, probably one of the highest audience response, but did a lot of props, did a lot of different things, sometimes did a character of an Italian guy. Did time in jail. And did time in jail. For resetting odometers when he was selling used cars. That's right. That's right. Wow. 
and uh, and Frank Santarelli, who'd come from Cleveland, and he was just more of an entertainer, but had some great funny things. He was just a really great guy. Killer timing, unbelievable delivery. He was on The Sopranos. Yeah, he was the bartender on The Sopranos, and I I book them. I remember I have like a budget of maybe three hundred dollars to book a, a a cruise around the harbor. So you're paying out a hundred of that. No, no. Two. I always took twenty percent as a booker in the uh, in the basement uh, at that time, I believe. So I think it was uh, so there was six. So there was about two hundred and forty dollars left for the comedians, something like that. But anyway, so I tell them all they're going on a cruise around the harbor. So Julie Barr thinks that it's like a a cruise, like a princess cruise. So she goes down there dressed in like an evening gown and like high heel <laughs> shoes. Ed Regine is probably dressed in his uh, shiny double breasted double breasted zoot shoot suit where he did the character of an Italian yeah. guy Ed the Machine the Machine. And Santarelli always dressed in like a uh, Hawaiian shirt, shorts right. and sneakers. Right. And so it turned out that this cruise around the harbor was like a tuna boat, <laughs> okay? <laughs> and you just hear the engine just... Diesel you know, fuel. Diesel fuel smelling up the whole thing. And they're trying to do comedy on a tuna boat with the with the fucking uh, life preservers hanging down from the top. You know how that is? <laughs> no stage, no, no lights. Stage, Here's no a wireless lights. mic. Go. Here's a wireless mic. Go. So, <laughs> so Julie Barr goes on. Nothing. I mean, crickets. Okay. You can hear the waves. Which is really bad because there's no crickets out in Bar Boston Harbor. That's how quiet it was. <laughs> it was literally wafting in from Cambridge. <laughs> oh shit, man! I can't. I, can't. <laughs> I mean, they literally bought crickets on the ship just so the comedians can get some sense of how badly they were doing. <laughs> I can't even laugh. I'm laughing so hard. So Ed Regine goes on. He does okay. But he noticed in Julie Barr walking around the corner because you, you're on the boat for four hours. You right. have to stay on this boat oh. in like an evening gown oh. and like high heel shoes and everybody walking up to you saying, don't worry, you'll get them next yeah. time. <laughs> and then Frank Santorelli goes on and kills. And Frank tells me, calls me after the geese. And boy, it was rough for Julie. Ed did okay. I killed him. But I got to tell you about something that happened. I said, what happened? This is how comedians are. Well, Ed Regine, after the gig, you know, I'm in the corner. I'm having a drink. He comes up to me, and he leans up to my ear, and he says, what are you making, 40? <laughs> so he thought that the headliner was making the $40 that he was making. But every comedian always checks to see what oh, they're doing. Right. So that's why you can never book a gig when you're writing, which we'll talk about. That's why there's union fees for first-time writers, second-time writers, because everybody talks to each other about what right. they're making. Right, right. And it's crazy. Well, and also, just going back to Julie, like when you bomb on a ship, it's almost like having <laughs> sex with a woman, not getting it up, and having to sit and have dinner with her afterwards. <laughs> Everybody is ashamed on the boat. You're ashamed. They're ashamed for you. And, you know, and you talk about people who do these cruise ships. You're stuck on there for a week with these people. That's right. Your room has no windows. I've never done it. Sometimes but this they is... airlift you off the ship if you do poorly. I've heard that. 
Sometimes, if you can't get it up with your girl, she airlifts you off that's the right. ship. <laughs> so that's that's a that's a bad good thing. one, Barry. Thank you. Yeah. I, I I have to. I can't follow the cricket no, line, no, but no. Uh, but that was that's pretty good. solid. <laughs> so so go back. So you're so you're. What's your living? Uh, so I'm working at. Um, I was I was cleaning a house on Beacon Hill. I would go over to this house. I'd pick up. I'd pick up the kids from school, and then I'd go. The 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 dad was the head of neurosurgery at uh, Mass General, and the the mom was getting her PhD in theology. So you they were in around. So you were a nanny. I was a nanny. I'd pick up these kids, and I'd clean the house in this, you know, upper crust Beacon Hill place that was completely run down. And where were you living? I was living in Alston near your office. And we living in what kind of apartment? You have roommates. It was you know a dump. I had uh, I had the I lived with jocks for some reason. I was with the captain of the rugby team, captain of the lacrosse team, captain of the tennis team, and me, horrible athlete but comedian. And we used to have killer parties. And then we had a guy from Northern Ireland sleeping on our couch, who was a friend of my brother's, who came for the head of the Charles weekend and stayed for a year, no rent, living on the couch. But he had weed and he had this meat truck. He would deliver, he would sell meat to, to, to stores. He would go door to door with a refrigerated truck. And so we'd get baked. And then at three in the morning, he'd go down and get a couple of prime ribs and we'd cook, cook them up. And by the end of the year, he led, he left town because he owed them so much money because he, we were eating all the meat <laughs> and, uh, his name was Sean Burgoyne. And, uh, so it was just, it was a constant party. I was cleaning this house and then I was working as a banquet waiter at the Marriott. So what happened to where the moment came where you said to yourself, I'm never working a day job again. I am a stand up comic. I make my living doing this and this is what I'm doing. Well, I don't. I can't remember a hard moment because the the banquet waiter gig was so sweet. I would go in at like, you know, three o'clock, and it was like a four or five hour shift, and it was it was good money at the time. I mean, it was like you know sixteen bucks an hour, which was pretty good back then. You get a shift meal, and you were working with college kids from all over Boston, hot chicks, and you knew all the bartenders. So you were drinking while you were working. It was a party, so. I just took less and less shifts to the point where I was working maybe one or two shifts a week. And, uh, and then I think w once it got to the point where I had, I mean, like you're talking about the, you booked the most gigs in Boston, but then you had guys like Billy Downs and Dick Darty. So it got to the point where if you had a car and you had 15 solid minutes of material, you could go out and make 50 or 70 bucks a night cash five, six, seven nights a week. So it got to the point where, you know, it just displaced any other work, and I became an animal. I mean, I spent four years in Boston working like that with, again, Joe Rogan, you know, Robbie Prince, and uh, Todd Parker, and all these guys, some of which made it, some of them didn't. And, uh, and it just became this grind where during the day, I'd call Nina, I'd call Billy, I'd call Dick, fill up my date book. And then we would uh, play softball. The comedians would play softball and hang out. It was, an, it was mm. the greatest time of my life in a sense because I knew what I wanted to do my whole life and now I was doing it. I was doing it in the epicenter of stand-up comedy. In the history of comedy, there will never be a boom like there was in Boston at the time when you were booking those rooms. It was crazy. It was crazy and it was a closed community. People did not come in from outside. There was a few New York comics that worked, but not many. 
And um, and you had and there were great people, and you mentioned great people, and I, I should say something uh, about Joe. Of Rogan course, you haven't spoken in well over three minutes. I am known to speak a lot on these podcasts. I'm sorry. I, I, I'll try to be better at that. I'll try to be the best represent. I keep staring at that that bar that you have wrapped up there that you haven't eaten. I well, don't know I, why that I is. Well, I showed up and I didn't know if you had a cafe here and I just came from doing another interview with Mr. Tom Papa, your friend. Wow. I can't believe I, 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 I get the headline after Tom Papa. I could, I've been really looking forward to this, by the way. And I didn't know if they had a cafe <laughs> and I was very hungry. So I, I brought a granola bar from my car thinking if I didn't get a meal and luckily I had a nice chicken teriyaki bowl I can't believe you double booked that's incredible you, you I, I, and then I have three spots tonight three stand-up spots tonight so I won't feel like I, I, I but I feel like you're very energetic you got it going but I want to talk about Joe Rogan yeah because I never have talked about Joe Rogan uh, on this podcast ever and I remember seeing him for the first time at the Comedy Connection in Boston. And he was like a guy who was like, I mean, he was a great looking guy and he was ripped. He had muscles in places that most people don't even have. He was the national Taekwondo champion. Yeah. And I didn't know that when I was watching him, but you know, when a guy is confident about his body in that time of year and that it was like it was almost like the fall and he was wearing overalls with no shirt doing stand-up <laughs> <laughs> i'll never forget david tell's bit and i've mentioned it before that i always love one of the first bits that david tell i ever saw him say he said i know i went is. to uh i went to a gap with my friend he comes out of the dressing room, he's wearing overalls, he looks at me and he says, uh, what go with these, Dave? And Dave says... Uh, not a girl or a job. <laughs> That's right. I'll tell you what, don't go with those jobs and women. Yeah. <laughs> and so, <laughs> but Joe Rogan was a guy that like, when I saw him in the back of the room doing his stand-up and he was killing, he was a little blue, but he was killing, and he was a guy wearing overalls, no shirt, and I said to myself... This guy is never going to have a problem with this guy's never going to have a problem with anything because he's like a almost like a force. Yeah. He was a force on stage. But the weirdest thing is I never I never looked at him as a guy at that moment and I never as a guy who I thought necessarily in the in the terms of breaking out of Boston or doing whatever. I don't know if it was believe it or not judging the book by its cover with the overalls and no shirt or the confidence that he had when most comedians in Boston although they had confidence they were more self-effacing. Lenny Clark had the most confidence of anybody, but he'd still have that, you know, a little bit of humility within the act to do whatever. And and Joe was just so forceful and so powerful. Well, he came from, I mean, his influences were Kinnison and, and uh, you know, um, uh, Bill Hicks. Yeah. You know, this unapologetic, strong voice. Yeah, and I, I, I just... Um, but I really, really, I want to say this, I respected what he did on stage. I respected the image that he presented. And I respected the fact that he could kill just going up in any way like that and doing it. And I didn't really see him a lot in Boston. But when You I didn't did, book him. I, no, Nina was booking things at that time. Right. This is I think he started in the early 90s when right. I had started going to New York. Yeah, we both started in 89. Yeah, but uh, I don't remember... If she booked him, how she well, booked him. Well, he had him. trouble getting booked because the truth is, as an opening act, he was blowing away the feature. As a feature, he was blown away the headliner. Even before he had the time, I think, to headline, he was headlining and he grew into it. 
But um, yeah, because he was blue, there was definitely a little bit of a, like, um, he was more aggressive than some other comics. But I, you know, I know that he and I, I came up, I was definitely more aggressive and more blue. And it, it was, there, there became two cliques in Boston at that time. There was the esoteric Catch a Rising Star, David Cross, Cross Comedy. Group. John Groff. John Groff and Paul Kozlowski and Mark Marin and, uh, you know, guys like John Benjamin that have gone on to be really huge in voiceover and writing. And um, and then there was the guys that came from the Lenny. You know, Lenny would have been the king of the more road comic type of, of acts, which, you know, me and Joe were in. And, uh, you know, and it, it became a little bit of a, like a real, you know, sharks and the jets kind of thing. You know, they were, they were, they couldn't do well in the clubs that we could do well in and vice versa. And, uh, and it was, that was kind of an interesting time because it was the roots of Mr. Show. Really. A lot of the people from Mr. Show came from that, that movement. And then obviously the people that you named came out of came out of this movement, you know, this side of things like, you know, Bill Burr's voice came very much from that, you know, road comic side of the Boston world. Yeah, because in Boston, for those of you who don't know, com you know, you go to a comedy club here, let's say in LA or even in your hometown, you go to a comedy club there, you look around, you can't see a bar anywhere. You can't see where the drinks are coming from. All of a sudden, they just magically appear with a waiter or a waitress. In Boston, you were performing in the bars. Bars were turned into comedy clubs. Even the comedy clubs that were in Boston proper had a bar in the room. And so oftentimes, they had a television with the Bruins or the oh, Celtics yeah. on. Right. And you'd be doing a joke, and you'd hear this huge round of applause right. and, like, cheering. And you'd think, wow, I never knew that joke was so great. And I you realize that the Bruins just scored. I remember doing a gig in Portsmouth, New Hampshire with Paul Kozlowski. I booked that gig. And uh, Oh, did you? Mm -hmm. And uh, there was a TV on behind us. It was like a sports bar. And they were showing a uh, playoff game. And Paul got the remote control and he would do his acts and then he would be watching. And as soon as somebody would hit a ball deep, he would change the channel <laughs> so they couldn't see it. And he just kept doing that until people left. And then a couple guys threatened him and, and the show is over. <laughs> yeah, I mean, there was a bit, the Bill Rick in 99 was another one that had a, a, a circular bar in the center of the room. So half the audience was in front of the bar. The other half was on the far side of the bar. And it was, it was like, sometimes it, for some weird reason, it worked. Sometimes it was a Chinese restaurant that had a, that had a banquet room in the back. And all you did was put up a mic stand, no fucking lighting system, just a couple speakers and a mic stand. And sometimes it was just magic and it worked. Yeah. Because I think that sometimes people just as a group collectively and in the comedy club, and this is something that nobody ever really analyzes, but it's very rare for an entire room full of people to love the person on stage. It's like, it's, it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's even the greatest. If, if you have like Mick Jagger, uh, who's like the first guest on Letterman, there's going to be people who turn off Mick Jagger and say, I don't like Mick Jagger. So you could have a guy killing at a comedy club and there might be, um, 10 out of 200 people that don't like him. 
but they're overruled by the majority of the people there and the loudness of the crowd and everything that happens. And eventually, when you're in a crowd like that, like say when there's the circular bar, there's people who just come there and they just, for some reason, they lock on to you. You don't know why, but the content keeps them. Right. And that's what uh, used to be able to go into these hell rooms and do really great, as did Joe Rogan and a number of people during that time. Well, yeah, and to get that critical mass required, you know, knowing what, and again, going back to pandering, it it wasn't necessarily the material that would make you consistently connect with them. It was the Don Gavin type delivery. Don which Gavin was, was a guy that was literally, if if... The only way to describe Don Gavin is to compare him to double time music only with comedy because his comedy was so fast and right. so many throwaway lines. Right. It's all throwaway. And that's what they reacted to because throwaway basically goes, I belong here. You are incidental to this experience. It's this New England kind of uh, cockiness. And, uh, and so when you, when you tell a joke and then you throw another joke out there and then you move on and you go over and you turn your back to them to have a sip of your drink and that, that's what he did. And the audience, it grabbed them because they said, oh, he, we're not the center of attention. He is. And all the power would just shift to the stage. And that I found that mentality is what I took out of Boston was don't give them the power. You know, it's you're up there and if you're doing what what interests you and what is um, and is the is the thing that if you were watching a show, you would be doing if you're doing that, it will come to you. And if it doesn't, it shouldn't matter or they shouldn't see to you that it matters. Absolutely. And so talk about the first break you got and where you actually said to yourself, I, I can do this. Well, I think passing in at the clubs in New York became a big milestone for me because I was working in Boston and for about two years I spent I spent Monday through Wednesday, Monday through Thursday in New York and then I would drive up to Boston on the weekends and I would do shows and I'd make enough money to pay my rent in New York or I actually stayed on couches or I stayed at my mother's house. Yeah, no, I, I paid rent in Boston, and then I stayed with my mom or friends in New York, and I would hang out at the Boston Comedy Club and the Comedy Cellar and the Strip and Stand Up New York, and it took me a while to get any spots at all. It was like like you were talking about. You got to hang out. And well, you got spots at my club. I did. I got spots. Well, that was the thing, is that was the pipeline to New York, was not only that Boston comics could come down and get stage time at the Boston Comedy Club. Just but so that, you were clear, the Boston Comedy Club was my club on West 3rd Street in New York. Right. And so not only was it that we could get spots there, but it was that of the few comics that came to Boston, they came through you. They were they were guys like Eddie Brill that came up and Colin Quinn. I remember Nick DiPaolo saying, Eddie Brill, I, did, I, I don't understand. How can anybody be pissed off at the phone book? <laughs> How can anybody... Why are they still making the yellow pages? How could somebody spend 10 minutes being angry over the letter Y? (laughs) So I would go to New York and guys like... And Louis was in this camp also. I reached out to Louis C.K. and Eddie Brill. And those were the guys that got me an audition set at the the clubs. And then um, sometimes I passed, sometimes I didn't. The comic strip, Lucian Holt told me, he goes, you know, you're just another white 
low energy male comic. I already have a ton of those. And so I kept showing up and he said to me years later, he said, I always respected you because I gave you no ray of hope at this club and you kept coming in and you kept coming in and you would do two AM spots in front of three people. And then eventually I became one of the regulars at the club. Show up everybody. Just show up. And so I killed myself for a couple of years going back and forth like that. And uh, the, the, when I felt like a comic was when all of a sudden I was doing two and three sets a night in New York and walking away with, you know, $60 in my pocket for the three sets, spending most of that in cab fare and then driving back to Boston jazz like, wow, I'm a fucking New York comic now. Awesome. Your first television break. Well, I mean, you know, I I did like uh, comedy on the road in New Brunswick, New Jersey, which, you know, didn't mean anything. But when you talk to John Biner's comedy on the road and um, but but when I did Letterman, which was 96 for the first time. Tell us about the process as a comedian auditioning and how do you get to audition and and how do you know you're on the path to actually getting it? Or do you just never know and it just happens? Um, I think, again, it goes back to that whole meritocracy thing. Letterman's got feelers out. If you're somebody that's interesting and you don't have to be drawing, you don't have to be making any money. If you're if you're a guy that is making some waves in New York and people are talking about the Letterman people are going to see you. And in my case, I got lucky because I went to the Montreal Comedy Festival and I'd been doing comedy for, I guess, about eight years at this point. And uh, so I was a Boston comic. I had lies, you know, Malcolm Gladwell would say I had my 10,000 hours. Um, so how does that go with lucky? Right. Well, I got lucky in the sense that Montreal was still a place where important people showed up from the networks. You didn't get lucky. They saw you, you did the right stuff and they picked you to go there. Well, that's a, that's the non-Irish way of looking at it. And so, so I went up and I, I started doing sets in Montreal and I just caught fire. You know, every, every year there's one guy that just gets the buzz on him. And in 96, I was the guy I got, I did one set and then there was this kind of clamor. And the next set I did, you know what I remember about that because you went up there and if I'm not mistaken, you didn't have a manager or an agent. Nope. And I remember this is a, my point as a manager where I was like, God, I just, uh, I wonder if he'll, he'll talk with me. I wonder if he'll meet with me. I wonder if he'll give me the time of day when I'm up there. And, um, and you did meet with me and you did talk with me and you did give me the opportunity to tell you what I could do for you. But in the end, uh, I didn't get the gig. Well, Dave Becky, who was kind of, I had a loose relationship with Dave at that time. You know, he had sent me he out for hip, some stuff. He had pocketed He you. had pocketed me and he had a tell and Louie and Marin and Todd Barry. And so it was kind of like, those were my guys coming up. And so I, uh. Yeah, it helped that I had no manager or agent because then not only were the networks and the studios approaching me, so were the agents and managers. So it really got where my second set, I got off stage and no exaggeration, there was a line of people handing me business cards. Kate Jurgens from NBC, Brandon Tartikoff. I met with while I was up there. I mean, the it youngest was the youngest president in the network history. The at NBC. most respected 
Intel. I mean, when you talk about now, they were like what we all wish development executives were. It was Brandon Tartikoff. But anyway, without getting into the details, it was like no. Why don't you get into the details? I think it's important for the people listening of how you go from uh, living in an apartment with four people and a rugby guy on a couch bringing steaks in to the point where this is the moment where it's all happening, and you have to decide which fork in the road do I take? I got a president of a network sitting across from me wanting to meet with me. I've got Dave Becky from uh, Three Arts wanting to represent me. And it's all happening. And how do you handle it? And what happens? Well, I had it. I remember my schedule was like, you know, 7 a.m., breakfast with this executive 10 o'clock and 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 it was like that all day for like four days and i left there with a booking on david letterman which meant more to i had a, i got a development deal with fox out of that weekend yeah because Manager, what, because what happened with fox in the 90s things were hot at the montreal just for last festival and fox actually was the only network that actually brought a business affairs person up there to the festival right. so that they could lock down a deal with somebody if they found somebody without them leaving because they knew if somebody left, they might lose them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I nailed down a development deal for a sitcom manager, agent. Um, agent a, was Ruth Ann Secunda. Ruth Ann Secunda, who, who, was who uh, represented my first eight uh, clients right? at uh, Abrams Artists. Right, Chappelle and Jay and everybody. Yeah. And so um, so basically all that stuff happened, but nothing came close to the Letterman booking. Which that is was, what I alluded to in the beginning of the podcast. Because right. Because again, Letterman is the holy grail for me. So you can have Brandon Tartikoff trying to represent you and have him on your network with the you know the greatest comedians in the history of the world and cosby and all these great things yet letterman was more important than that meeting letterman was more important than a deal for your own television show right right. and you know how much letterman paid back then five hundred and thirty four dollars and fifty cents right and it was uh and I came back because I had like going back to like not calling, not having a career. I never said career. I never dreamt of being in a sitcom. I didn't dream of having an agent or a manager. I dreamed about getting on Letterman. And so they set up the booking. I did it, you know, six weeks later I came on and, you know, for those six weeks I went every, out every single night and pounded out that five minute set and uh, got obsessed. It was like training for the Olympics. I mean, I, I started running every day. I just wanted clarity. And so I went up and... You had a great suit, I remember. Can I... Can I it wasn't it some kind of a, a gray or olive green? It Jesus, was, yeah. It was the olive green suit. I told suit. you, I watched My that set, God. and I must have watched that set 20 times. Wow. Yeah. So... I come out of my olive green suit and they're they're playing uh, "Miss You" by the Rolling No Beast of Burn It" by the Rolling Stones. You get to pick your song to come out to, and uh, I hit my mark and I see Letterman out of the corner of my eye, and I was so nervous. I did my first joke and they started laughing. And that theater is magic if you get them laughing in that theater. And then the rest of it was a complete blank. I don't remember any of it, but I got like nine applause breaks. The set could not have gone better. And before I walked out, I thought about my dad because my dad had died when I was probably about, I'd only been doing stand up maybe three or four years and he died. 
And then Letterman happened not too long after that. And I just remember thinking before I went out, he was, he was in my head. And then I just, I walked off stage and I was bawling. I was just crying. And it was, uh, Zoe Friedman was there and, and Morton and uh, Zoe just gave me a hug. And then Faith Hill was going on next and she saw me and she came over and she gave me this big hug. And it was like, dude, I will never, not since I have not had a moment in my career that felt anything like that. That was the peak. Wow. So that was such a great story, Greg. Jesus. You got a great, a lot of holy shit moments here, buddy. All right. So uh, good. Uh, tell me about how you decided then to become a writer. Like, how do you go from being a stand-up comic who has every deal in front of them? People are going crazy. They want you on The Tonight Show. They want you on all these things. And you're one of the few guys. This is another thing that everybody should take note of. Look at all the stand-up comics out there from the past 20 years. Tell me how many have done The Tonight Show, have done Letterman, have done Kimmel. You know, these are things you did Conan, I believe, too, didn't you? I think Conan seven times, Letterman seven or eight times, and so two half-hour specials, so one-hour special. <laughs> so you're one of the few people who's 30 done, weekends a year on the road for 25 years. But you're one of the few comedians who've done all of those things, which is amazing. So anyway, so tell me what it's like as a comedian when things are going well like that. How do you decide that, okay, all of a sudden now I'm going to try writing? Well, my father, when I, I went to college, I was an English major. I always wanted to be a writer. And then my father, when I started doing stand-up, was very supportive. But he said, write. He goes, the only advice I'm going to give you is go follow your dream, be a stand-up, do everything you need to do, but always be writing because that's the thing you're going to be able to count on throughout your career. And it turned out to be very prescient. I mean, I I, I got my first writing job because I was on... Uh, I was doing audience warm-up for Bill Maher on Politically Incorrect. And so he would see me doing my stand-up in front of the crowd every night. And then one day, uh, Bill Carter comes to me. Not Bill Carter. Scott Carter comes to me. The and, executive producer of that show. And he says, uh, Bill loves your stand-up. How would you like to write on the show? Which is also an interesting thing to show you what kind of a, a person Bill Maher was in the business. Many people who host their own shows, they'll never go out and watch the warm-up guy. Right. But he did. He took note. Yeah. So he invited me on, and I, that was my first writing job. And now, I, that was a tough gig writing for Bill Maher. Oh, yeah. Now, he's a very, 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 very demanding person when it comes to the writing. And similarly to Dennis Miller, and I know Bill would be upset if I compared him to Dennis Miller in the writer's room, but I will compare him to Dennis Miller in the brilliance department. The fact is, is that Dennis Miller was always the kind of guy who was the, if, if you work for Dennis Miller, be like, hey, Greg, listen, I just want to tell you something. I didn't bring you here to be my friend. I brought you here to be a great writer. Mm -hmm. So we're not friends. I expect you to be a great writer. Mm -hmm. And I think in Bill's case, I think that's the way it was. And it's hard when you're working hard and killing yourself and getting there early and working late. For some reason, the comedian and the and inside every comedian, they want to be loved. Oh, yeah. They want to know that they're recognized and that they can hang well, out. Well, transitioning from being in front of the crowd yourself and getting all the accolades, all the attention, total control of the material, to going into a room with eight other guys and fighting to get one line in. 
you know, we would show up and by 11 a.m. you had to have 40 jokes written. <laughs> and then you'd send those in and those were for the monologue. And then about three hours later, the, the sheet would come back with the jokes that were picked and the initials of the writer who had written that joke. And if you didn't score a joke that day, you didn't feel good at all. <laughs> and then you had days where you scored three, four jokes and you felt like I'm the shit. So you lived day to day by those monologue jokes. And then you started writing on topics and pitching topics and writing jokes for the contestant, for the panelists to have. And so anyway, so I did that, but then I ended up with a, a deal. And so I um, ended up moving to LA not too long after that, but the seed was planted. I was like, I was in the writer's guild and I'd sold a, this is my, I, this is my second sitcom that I went out. So I was writing scripts and then, and when you write for these shows, you know, when you're in the writer's guild, which you get in the writer's guild, if it's a union show, Granted, variety shows don't pay as much as scripted shows because the scripted shows now, if you're a baby writer on a scripted show or half-hour sitcom, you're making over $4,000 a week. But in these variety shows, it was normally about, I'd say, one-third of that to one-half of that a week that you were making. But sometimes in certain shows that were established and that were doing really well, they would give you a little more. Uh, I don't want to get into what you're making, but that's normally how it made. But but at that time, when you're making that each week, it it, it adds up. Yeah, it adds up, and it's just a, it's a sense of um, you know being part of a community. And and I think having spent so many years, you you're a solo act as a stand up, and you've got nobody to commiserate with. You've got other comics that you can talk to, but it's not like showing up to an office where you've got your own coffee mug. There's the PA that you flirt with. There's the other comedians that you, uh, you're making each other laugh in this community. And I love that. And I, you know, Louis CK was an inspiration for me in terms of being a stand up and continuing to write and taking that extra effort after a long day of writing to still go out and do a set at the comedy club. And uh, so when I got to L.A., uh, Louie got me my first writing job in L.A., which was also on a variety show, Cedric the Entertainer Presents. And from there, he hired me to write on his pilot and, uh, and then eventually on Lucky Louie. So he, I owe him a lot in terms of being on the writer's side of things. And then I would always just pick up. Um, I've been very lucky to pick up uh, consulting producer writing jobs where I can go in two or three days a week. So I was able to work it around my schedule and still do a lot of stand-up. And then I've been able to sell shows, and now I'm kind of a showrunner on some shows. Kind of a? Well, I'm a showrunner on some shows. And the beautiful thing about that is I got to hire Dennis Miller's son on a pilot that I sold to FX last fall that we shot. Wow. Yeah. I remember uh, uh, Jeff Ross interviewed uh, Dennis Miller years ago when Jeff was probably Jeff Lifschultz or close right. when he changed to Jeff Ross. And he said to Dennis, it was a really quick interview. He said to Dennis, say, how would you feel if your children became stand-up comedians? And Dennis said, hey, I wouldn't mind. I mean, I, I'd support him if he wanted to be a stand-up comedian. I, I'm fine with that. And there was a pause. And Jeff said, what if he was a guitar act? <laughs> <laughs> that's hilarious. And Dennis Miller said, oh, that's so inside. He was laughing. For the record, look out for this kid. His name is, is Holden, and he is a brilliant young He's he's gonna he's gonna do a lot of great things. How old is how old is he now? Twenty three, something awesome. crazy. Yeah. Awesome. So tell me how you got working with uh Ellen DeGeneres. Um, my, 
daughter had just been born and I really wanted to be off the road. And so I heard about Ellen getting a talk show and she was one of the people that I, you know, like anybody just had so much respect for. She was on the Mount Rushmore of comics in my mind. And so I said, I really want this job. And so I happen to know the woman that was the executive producer, uh, Mary Connolly, had booked of me course. to do stand up. She was on Letterman when I did Letterman. And then she booked me on um, Wonderful the Craig Kilborn show a bunch of times. So we had a relationship. And then um, uh, Karen uh, Kilgariff was the head writer. So I had a couple solid ins. Relationships, everybody. Right. So I wrote a, I wrote a, a packet for the show, you know, some monologue jokes, some sketches. Which is what you normally have to do. They give you a guideline of a packet that to follow, and then you write it out, and you right. send it in. and Sent it in, and uh, she... I, I believe I got the job without even meeting her. I think I got I think I got hired off the packet. And then I came in, you know, like four months before the show started, we were in there figuring out what what's this show? You know, what's the structure? Uh, how are we going to get her over from her stand-up mark to the desk? How about she dances? <laughs> like literally that was one of the meetings. And, uh, and so I did that for a couple of years. And it was... Um, and here's the funny thing is I was hired as a writer producer and then we were trying to find an audience warm up person and Ellen couldn't find anybody she liked. And so we started doing test shows and she gives me the mic. She goes, go out and do the, we had audiences do, do the warm up. So I'm doing the warm up for the test shows. And then we get closer to the air date and she's like, Greg, you're doing warm up for the series. I'm like, I'm not doing fucking warm up on the show. And then I find out that on top of my salary, it's like another salary. It's it is. It's, it's like, real money. It's real money, and the the best warm up guys in town make about fifteen hundred dollars a show or more. Oh yeah, and so and if you're doing a show that's going five days a week, I'm sure you weren't making fifteen hundred a show five days a week. But you're you know you get a pretty good chunk it was of money. Pretty, it was pretty close, and and the warm up was essentially warmed down. These people were out of their minds. They were so happy. I came out ten minutes of welcome to the show. Here's what's going to happen. And then, uh, and then the show would start and I was pretty much done during the, during the commercial breaks, they played music and danced. And, uh, I sat in the front row with cue cards and I was the only writer that did that. And I just wrote jokes furiously and I held them up. I'd be standing over Tom Cruise's shoulder, holding up a joke for Ellen to read, you know, running around the stage with, with cue cards. On average, what percentage did she use of I'd, the jokes you wrote? I'd score anywhere from four to 10 jokes a show. On top of writing monologue jokes. What was it like to win that first Emmy? Not, not a big deal. You know, I, I just, it, I don't want to be disingenuous about it, but it was like, um, it was exciting, but I really, uh, I never went to any of the ceremonies and it just felt like, you know, they're daytime Emmys, which is, which is very nice. But uh, it was just weird. It didn't feel like it didn't feel like I earned it or deserved it. it what was, about the fourth one? Did you feel like you earned that probably one? Probably even less. It just felt silly, you know. Boy, you are Irish. Yeah, I guess. I mean, I just I just feel like uh, you know we worked hard on the show, but it's not like. If I had four Emmys, there'd like be the doorstops here on each door. There'd be one yeah. stand sitting on the table here, just right. to, because that, no, probably not. But it wasn't like I wrote a script of an episode that won the Emmy. You know, there was like seven writers and we all got them. And uh, I don't know. It's nice. It's very, it was very nice. Got it. And I consider Ellen also to be a genius. And you talked about the Mount Rushmore of comedy. 
there's somebody else who I believe should be on the Mount Rushmore of comedy in an alternative universe, and that's Howard Stern. Hmm. Another BU graduate. That's right. And I think that when you go on Letterman and you get his validation, another genius, Ellen, get her validation where she wants you to actually be the person who warms up her crowd, the safety net for her, the person who makes her feel safe. That's the guy. Every time Letterman went out and Eddie Brill was doing the warm up, he'd go to Eddie and say, how are they? Right. So then you're doing Howard Stern, who, is there anybody more of a genius, a guy who has to come up with four hours of material every day and and figure it out, and then goes, now recently goes on America's Got Talent, completely changes who he is on the radio, and the show doesn't even exist without him anymore. It's like if he gets off of it. So... Another, a third person that you work with, as well as Louie, who I consider to be an incredible genius when it comes to working hard and just keep staying the course and going through it. So talk about what it was like to go on Howard for the first time. Was that similar to Letterman where you were, because you're a New York guy. Yeah. Your your father was a, a radio guy. Well, that's the hitch is that on Howard's way up, he went after the other DJs. So he regularly shit on my father and he was persona non grata in my house. My mother to this day hates Howard Stern and my father, my father got what Howard was doing. He understood the strategy of, you know, going after William B. Williams and Don Imus and all the guys that were uh, ahead of him. And so, um, you know, it was tough. It was, uh, it was very mixed. My father, when my father died, Howard eulogized him and it was very beautiful. He talked about, it's funny that you, your intro was this, but he said that my father was the most liked guy in the industry and that he was somebody that Howard learned a lot from and he respected and he respected his work ethic and the way he treated people and all this stuff. And so to me, he buried the hatchet. I, did, I didn't have any bad blood with Howard after that. I was a fan of the show, which I would never tell my mother. And so the, suddenly Jackie the Joke Man leaves the show and they're looking for somebody to fill the seat. And that year I had gone and done that uh, HBO uh, comedy festival and I got the jury award. So I suddenly was on their radar. I was like, who's this kid? Let's bring him in. Whoa, he's Bob Fitzsimmons' son? Oh, yeah, let's definitely bring him in. So I go in and I walk into the studio and I don't know if I'm going to get attacked. I you know, I know Howard style. I don't know if we're going to sit down and he's going to start taking shots at my dad in which case it would have been war, obviously. But you know Howard, and Howard has like this thing where he has this deep-seated respect, and he puts all that shit aside when it's a moment like that. Right. I, I feel you, you had to have known he wasn't going to attack you. Well, I wouldn't have gone in if I thought that it was likely, but I also had to prepare for that possibility. I'd be stupid not to. So I didn't sleep the night before and I really had visions of like, what, what am I going to, I'm going to get angry and that's not going to be funny if he says anything about my dad. So I go in and again, he eulogizes my dad. I mean, he, you know, bends over backwards to talk about what a great guy he was, talks about how he felt bad about the things he said about my dad. Um, so to me, it was like, all right, we're good, you know? And then I just started throwing out jokes, you know? And that's, I think the thing that, 
the thing that always worked for me on that show was that I never made it about me. Like Robert Schimmel would come in and he had stories that were, you know, just pull your car over and laugh and be amazed by. But that guy can't come in once a month. You know, I was the guy that came in and just he'd do the news and I'd toss out jokes. You know, Howard do the joke. I throw a tagline in on it. I'd have an opinion on something that's real quick. Never about me. Just poke checks. And so I was able to come into the show, you know, five, six times a year for years, you know, for 10 years. And so that became something that um, when you're in the room talking to Howard, you know, the first dozen times, you're a little bit dizzy. You know, you're looking at Robin in her booth, Fred's <laughs> over your shoulder, Baba Bowie's running in to talk on the microphone next to you. And you're just looking at Howard and Howard gives you this intense eye contact. He's got sunglasses on, but he's looking right at you. And so like any, you know, I think the, the key to doing interviews is just, just look at the person and be available to them. And so I would just sit there and connect with Howard and he would take you where you needed to go. You just had to give yourself over to him. Don't deflect, tell the truth and you'll be fine. You got to trust him. And that just, that just worked for me. And it taught me everything I know about doing radio, being interviewed. And, and so when I go on now, like I go on Corolla a lot of times and um, he just said to me, I went on the show last week and he said, basically when I see that you're the guest on the show, he said, I just, breathe a sigh of relief and I smile because I know you're going to come in and you get it. You get the rhythm of the show. And that I think is the best thing that you can do on radio is to just, it's the other person's show and support them, make them look good. And you'll be a welcome guest. Another guy who could be argued as a genius who you make feel safe. Oh yeah. Right. So that's what the running theme here is. So I could talk to you forever, but we're not going to do that because I know uh, you uh, have a life. So what I want to do, if you don't mind, is I'm going to ask you a few crazy questions. Oh, is this uh, like the speed round? Do you mind? Absolutely. I Uh, mind. But before I get into the speed round, I want to talk about, you talked a lot about stand-up. And I like asking comedians who are executive producers and who've been through the gamut of writing and producing and and their own radio shows. You're out there. You know comedy. Nobody knows comedy like you know comedy. Tell our audience some people who are doing stand-up out there in the world now that speak to you who maybe no one knows about yet, but in your mind, soon they will. You mentioned Dennis Miller is somebody who was talented and his son was, you know, um, Holden Miller. But I don't know if he's doing stand-up regularly. No, he's kind of writing. So so take us through some, you know, some performers that you feel speak to you, their comedy kind of, uh, you feel that they're doing the right thing and they're on the right track to the next level. Right. Um, Well, Gerard Carmichael, who's kind of, he's broken now because... uh, he did a special on HBO, but up until that, nobody had heard of him. And I've been, uh, I, I'm mourning the fact that he's going to get a big movie and TV career because there's another guy who is not going to now do his 10,000 hours on the road doing stand up. He's going to be pulled into fame and wealth. And, you know, and he's such a talented, natural, and a hardworking comic, writes a lot. But, you can only get so good when you're only playing in town and, you know, but, but, you know, he could go to the level where he does his TV and movie work and also goes on the road and 
but I mean, he's, he's fantastic. He's a, he's a rare talent. I agree. Yeah. Um, Michael Che, who's now on SNL, I would have said the same thing about six months ago before he got that job. The, so for the black guys, uh, there's that. <laughs> um, some of the guys that are just the, the pillars of New York comedy that people don't necessarily know, like uh, Big J Okerson, um, you know, they're, they're just uh, guys that turn in sets at the Comedy Cellar night after night and kill and kill. And yeah, it was kind of, you know, interesting would be mentioned Big J Okerson, because in the beginning you talk about how you try to find your voice and you try to find where you are. And I felt in the beginning, like, you know, Dave Attell was so iconic in New York City. I felt like a lot of people, including Jay Okerson, were sort of doing a cadence and a rhythm, a, a rhythm kind of comedy like right. Attell. But then slowly you find your own voice and you find something who you are. And then before you know it, that doesn't even exist anymore. And you become your own thing, which is great. And I think that's what he's done. Yes, I'm guilty of that, too. I definitely had some Attell cadence. You cannot watch Attell every night in New York and not start to feel like this is the language of comedy. This this um, kind of darkness and this this pirate he's a pirate you he's know, telling pirate stories you know as a comedian you're doing the right thing when you go on stage and all of a sudden people start coming into the room and you're watching from the stage and you got the lights in your eyes and you realize the people coming in the room are all stand-up comedians right. to watch you yeah and even when you do a joke that falls flat the things that he used to do, like grab the top of the mic and turn it and say, let me turn, turn this to funny, funny. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. It's just, just so great. Right. Uh, incredible. Anybody else you want to mention? Um, let's see. I just worked with a guy in Atlanta I thought was very funny. Um, Mike. Fuck. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to remember his name and email it to you. But, um, you know, I work on the road with a lot of guys that are really funny. There's a guy named Ian Carmel who I worked with in uh, Portland a couple times and just was immediately like, this guy just has got it. He's got it. And so... Uh, so you don't bring your own opening acts. No, because I feel like, you know, every local scene, like when I was in Boston, I didn't want to be displaced by some headliner coming in and bringing a feature act. It's like when I go to Denver or Austin, I feel like they've got their comedy scene. I trust the club bookers to put in somebody that's a good fit with me. And all I ask is that they don't do crowd work. And, you know, I, I don't care who it is. I don't care if they play guitar, if it's a redneck, if it's a big black guy, you know, it has no effect on my act as long as they're a decent comic. And, um, so, uh, yeah, Ian Carmel, he's really strong. He's in LA now. He came down here and, um, took it, took it by storm. I, I, I don't even know if I helped him get his first spot on stage. I might've, but then he immediately got hired by the Chelsea Handler show as a writer and became a regular panelist on there. And I think he's got this is all in the last year and now it's, everything's kind of popping for him. Oh, you seem like you have a great sense of who's going to make it. So I think that, uh, it's interesting me asking you that because I think it's important hearing a guy's voice of, of who, you know, of your stature and who you believe is going to do something special. It, it, it means a lot. So the lightning speed round. Let's do it. All right. So this is sort of like a sort of like a word association. I'm going to mention somebody. But what I want you to do is Jeez, think. Of, you're going to get me in trouble, huh? I'm not going to get you in trouble because I just want you to think towards 
something that you feel about this person or maybe a story or something that moves you about this person and your relationship or that, that might people might not know because what, what I think is really important for the audience is uh, the running theme is uh, and I say this a lot about that old Dale Carnegie book uh, how to sitting win on your desk right now and influence people is is associate yourself with great people and is that like a book you live by I really believe that you it's important for you. That's the thing. And in your career, I don't know if you realize it or not, but if you look at it, you went to the Montreal Just for Last Festival, the greatest festival in the world. Okay? You did Letterman, one of the greatest iconic people in the business. You did Leno. No matter what anybody can say about Leno, if you were ever to see him perform now or whatever, the guy is a monster in terms of stand-up and always was now one Rushmore. of the greatest. Incredible. Ellen, Chelsea Handler you, you worked with. You, I mean, Louie, um, Bill Maher, Adam Carolla, Howard Stern. So every single person, all these people are people that I believe are geniuses or have that quality about them. And you've associated yourself with them, which puts you... Uh, in that category, and in my opinion, when you're around those people, and people respect what you have to say. So let's talk a little bit about these people, and let's just just a little quick something that's a story, something our audience might not know, or some insight into something. All right, here we go. Uh, Conan O'Brien. Conan is a guy. When I uh, did stand up there the first time, uh, he immediately had a connection because I was doing jokes about being from a dysfunctional Irish family. And then during another the guy from Boston, right? Well, I'm from New York, but I yeah. Yeah, started in Boston. And so we basically just started talking about uh, during the commercial break. He told me about his family, and then every time I do the show, I'd always come backstage with them, and they they would have kind of a uh, post mortem <laughs> writers meeting. And I've never seen anybody be able to be. He wants to play. He wants to be funny, and he is the funniest guy in the room. And you're talking about some of the great writers, you know, Louis C.K. and uh, um, Mike Sweeney, all these razor sharp, fast, funny guys on his staff. And he's back there. And that is where he is the happiest. He just likes to be around funny people being funny. Bill Maher. You know, he, I, he's got a reputation, I guess, as, you know, being, a, 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 you know, pushing writers hard to work hard. But I think it comes from being around comedians and knowing that we're essentially lazy and that if we're pushed, we have a lot under the hood and there's a lot down there. And I think he's a guy who pushes himself that hard. And so he has to push the people around him that hard. But, um, you know, I think he's I think he's complete. He's a rare thing in that his show Politically Incorrect could not one of the great show names of all time and he lived up to it you know he's a guy that does not back off from his opinions i don't think he forces his opinions you know i think you look at a bill o'reilly or somebody like that i think he conjures up a, a take that's gonna you know get a rise out of people i think bill just really has some strong feelings and he uh and i respect he doesn't back off of them jay leno jay was one of the guys i used to go see at the bottom line as a teenager and uh, the bottom line, great, great club in Greenwich Village or on the outskirts of Greenwich Village. Right. Uh, and uh, going down there and watching him. And uh, like you said, I mean, in in his prime pre tonight show, when he was a pure stand up, 
you know, there's nobody that's ever been more professional, more just tight on the money. And and people don't realize he had an edge. He had real attitude before he got the Tonight he Show. He did. And actually, if you see him do stand up now, you'll see that edge as well. He's, he's still got it. And I was doing um, man on the street stuff for him on the Tonight Show for a while. And uh, one day I'm, I'm out in the yard doing yard work with my wife and uh, the, the home phone rings and she gets it and she goes, yeah, right. Who is this? <laughs> and it's Jay Leno. And he just called me out of the blue to just go, uh, hey, man, I really I love what you're doing on the show. I just wanted to thank you for, for doing it. And I mean, you hear those stories all the time about him. Incredible. Jimmy Kimmel. Jimmy is like, uh, you know the most loyal dude of all time. His relationship with Stern is really kind of, uh, you know, um, it's, it's so personal. And yet he's such a fan of Stern that you see that, you know, he, he still is buzzing from the fact that he's friends with Howard Stern. And I think Stern kind of feels the same way. And like, I've been like lucky enough to become friends with him. And he's like, you see the guys he hangs out with and they're the same guys he's known his entire life. And the guys that produce the shows that he's done over the years, Crank Yankers and Man Show, it's all the same guys. And, uh, you know, I think that's a hell of a way to live your life, to get as, as successful as you are and surround yourself with your uncle and your cousin. You know, his parents are extremely close to him, his brother, sister. You know, it's uh, I, I, all people should be as Italian as Jimmy Kimmel. Adam Carolla. Um, slightly Asperger's. You know, he's got this intensity that I love. Um, I just feel like like we'll we'll go on road trips. Like he'll do a gig in Irvine and he'll ask me if I want to come with him and jump up on stage and 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 riff. And so uh we'll drive down and I just bring my tape recorder and I do a podcast with him. We drive down and for an hour and fifteen minutes or whatever it takes. He just, uh, and, and I, I say to him, this is the way I want to interview you because your brain <laughs> is so crazy that when you're driving, it's, it, there's your frontal lobe is occupied by driving and I get the other part, which is freed up from how you normally are. And, and it's just, there's a part of him that comes out that's much more vulnerable and it's less apt to go into a rant that he's maybe said before. And uh, and so we have these really amazing podcasts together. I had a really amazing one with him, too. He's just yeah. incredible. He's incredible. Yeah. And just uh, how he does it, I don't know. I don't know how somebody, how you can say something like Crayola crayons and have a guy <laughs> without missing a beat go into, uh, you know, an editorial piece on, on crayons <laughs> that ends with a laugh. Oh, my God. Howard Stern. Too much to say. I mean... I don't know where to start. You know, it's, uh, I've never had somebody support me. Um, you know, I talked about Louis CK on the writing side and I would say with Howard doing those, doing all these appearances on his show has kept me in the business. You know, it has literally been something that I get meetings with people sometimes only because they want to talk to me because they hear me on the Howard Stern show. To this day, I, I will go into a network meeting and there'll be some some guy who's 40 years old from New York who's a Stern fan that lights up when I come in the room. And it's the same thing with stand-up. It helps me draw people into the clubs. And, uh, and it all comes from a very genuine appreciation that he has for how I function on his show. And it's something that, you know, it's symbiotic. I think I give to the show, but he gives way more to me in terms of... Uh, 
this seal of approval and and being I'm in the club. I'm in the Howard Stern club. Yes, you are, Ellen DeGeneres. Um, she's uh. <laughs> Who else you got on the list? <laughs> you are I'm laughing like the crickets line. <laughs> See? Nice guy. David Letterman. Ah, oh, Letterman. I, I mean, I remember the, the one of the times I did Letterman, they, they come down the stairs and they say, clear the hallway, clear the hallway, because when Letterman comes downstairs, he doesn't want to bump into anybody before the show. <laughs> and so, uh, so I clear the hallway. And then after the show, I'm walking back up to my dressing room and he happens to be coming into the stairwell at the same time. And we bump into each other. And he says... He says the same thing that he says to you when you finish your set. He comes over and he goes, nice job. Thanks for being on the show or some version <laughs> of that. And he said basically the same thing to me. And I was like, oh, my God, I just I feel naked. And people say like you hear people complain about that. Like, you know, you know, Dave, you go on a show and then during the commercial break, he doesn't even talk to you. He just he just sits there and he looks at his notes and it's like. This guy has been doing this for what, 40 years at, at the highest level that anybody's ever done it. And he has to engage three people a night with notes, with a monologue, with doing promos for the network, standards and practices, dealing with writers. When he's doing his one hour show, this dude is on a high wire. He doesn't want to engage. He, you know, Jay Leno, God bless him, comes into your green room before you go on the show and talks to you. Letterman is a personality that cannot do that and shouldn't be expected to do that. He's doing something nobody else can do. Who gives a, why do you need to fucking talk to him during the commercial break? <laughs> Shut up and let him look at his notes. <laughs> Chelsea Handler. I love Chelsea's another one that she gets a reputation for being a little bit tough because she's outspoken. And I think people have a problem with her because they have problems with women that are strong. And uh, I think that she is, I mean, second to Howard, she is the best interviewer out or Colbert. I think Letterman Colbert and uh and Howard and Chelsea I put up there above everybody else. She her one-on-one -on -one interviews with celebrities are so in the moment. There is absolutely no no check in her mind. She says exactly what she wants and and she gets away with it because when you own it and you really are that person, people go with it. They don't get offended. And she gets in deep with people. It's amazing. Louis CK. You know, like I said, Louis, I owe, I owe a lot to Louis and, uh, and I see a lot of comics, they come up and they try to do things like, um, like you were talking about when, when, when comics start to sound like other comics and you're seeing a lot of Louis CK type comedians out there now, but they're not really getting it. Louis is raw and he, you can call him blue, but there's a method to it. There's, there's a message underneath what he's saying, or there's, there's some social commentary to, to what he's doing underneath it. And you see comics go, well, Louis CK did it. You know, they say that about Louis, like, well, Louis just wrote a short film and then he got to be the head writer of Conan. And I just always say to people, that's Louis CK. 
nobody else is going to do it the way Louis did it. Nobody else is going to take a $200,000 budget on cable and edit and write and star in and cast and score a show that wins Emmys. That's Louis. Come up with a plan that's yours because nobody will ever do what he did. Absolutely. Let's uh, shift gears here. Let's talk about the lowest moment you had in your career professionally and how did you work through it and how did that affect your career moving forward in a positive way? Oh, the lowest point in my career. Jesus. What time is Besides it? Besides this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, that's tough because I think in a way I, I push through those things and I don't look back, you know, uh, I don't ponder on the low points. I can't because I'm, I gotta, not, I'm I, not asking you to ponder on. I'm just asking you to just recall one that might have uh, taken you to the next level after it happened. Well, I had a, you know, you go through periods where you've got a buzz, where you've got some heat, where, you know, suddenly people want meetings with you. I don't know anything about that. Yeah, right. You're the guy who creates it. Here's Barry's move. When Barry, when Barry has a client on a showcase at a comedy club, he stands in the back of the room and with those big fucking meat plates of hands, he starts applause breaks. And he'll start in the back left and he'll start an applause break. Then he'll move to the back right and he'll just keep moving around until heat begins on that client. Um, so I was, uh, so I had a little heat and I had a meeting. NBC, uh, was excited about me to the point where I had a meeting with the head of casting, the head of development and Jeff Zucker, the head of, you know, every department, like, you know, 11 people in a room and I'm coming in and it's a 9am meeting in Burbank. I live in Venice. <laughs> I leave at eight. And you know the ending of that. It took me an hour and 20 minutes to get there. And I walked into a meeting with Jeff Zucker and all these people 20 minutes late at the beginning of a workday on a Monday. And I was frazzled. I was ashamed. And I walked into that meeting and Jeff Zucker, was he just was watching the Today Show over my shoulder while, while interviewing me. And it was a 12-minute meeting. And I walked out of there and I went, I just took a major lottery ticket and flushed it down the toilet. And I, I can't say I've never been late since, but I think about that moment. Every time I'm getting ready for something, I swear to you, there's a part of that feeling deep inside of me that still makes me go, you know what? Like you said before, show up. And guess what, everybody? Guess what time uh, Greg Fitzsimmons showed up for his one o'clock podcast today? What time? 1245. That's right. Incredible. All right. What's your proudest moment professionally? Well, I talked about the Letterman thing. That was that was without a doubt uh, a really big one. And I would say also I hosted the 20th, 25th anniversary of the uh, Porn Awards in Las Vegas on Showtime. And, uh, did they give you a free pack of pills with that? Uh... No, they gave you a fake vagina. 
a fake vagina. Yeah, they have like a thing called the... Um, Does it have a vice grip so you can tighten, calibrate it to be tighter or looser, depending no, on your size? most guys don't need that, but I'll find out if they can get one for <laughs> I you. Do need, I remember this comedian who passed away, wonderful guy, Mike Sullivan Irwin, and he had this great joke. He said, you know, he'd go to the... He'd go to the counter of a convenience store to get condoms, and 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 it was an embarrassing moment. So he wanted to feel like he was, you know, a powerful guy. So he'd say, "Give me a pack of those uh, condoms, the Magnum condoms," and then he'd pause and he'd say, "And um, <coughs> uh, a pack of rubber bands, please." <laughs> <laughs> uh, so you host the porn awards on the 25th anniversary, and that was your uh, moment. In a way, it was because, like, again, going back to like working blue and owning that, just. As as much I felt like you know I knew the challenge of it. Bill Hicks had done it Sam Kinison had done it and I felt like this was the this was the wild west of comedy and I knew the producer who hired me said look you got there's gonna be 7,000 people out there many of them on cocaine a lot of them porn stars you will have to fight to get any attention whatsoever and you've got 30 seconds and if you don't get them in 30 seconds they will literally just turn and start talking to each other at full volume and you will have to kill seven minutes. So I worked my ass off. I mean, I had porn jokes, but I wrote more porn jokes, and I was out every night doing them. And I came out, and I had a great opening joke, and I got them, and then it was raucous. It was 7,000 fucking cranked up people laughing at the dirt, literally the dirtiest material I could think of. And it was like flushing it all out of my system. And I got more notoriety because Showtime does not advertise the porn awards. It's like one of their highest rated programs of the year. You will not see an ad for it. And so I would just get guys pulling me aside going like, dude, you fucking killed on the board. My wife's coming. And, <laughs> and so uh, I, in a weird way, yeah, that was, a, that was a very cool thing. Oh, that's great. I keep thinking, I'm sorry, just as you said that I thought of uh, uh, one of Jay Moore's jokes where he says, you know you're watching too much porn when you can recognize a male actor by his balls. <laughs> 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 so last right. question greg so as a comic writer producer showrunner you know you've done so many things you've father. worked with so many great father you've worked with so many great people um based on all these experiences that you've had what advice would you have for the person starting out uh and trying to get to the point and have the kind of career that you have I guess, you know, it's nice that you say all these things about me, but I think one of the things it points out is that um, I don't know that I put enough focus on having, um, I don't know that I had the confidence to really say, or the, clar the clarity to know what I really wanted long-term in my career, and then the confidence to have the restraint to not do things that would keep me from getting there. Like, I'm half joking when I talk about the porn awards, but... I said to Jimmy Kimmel on an interview, I said, what, what does a guy like me need to do to become a guy like you? And he says, don't host things like the Porn Awards. And, you know, I had a lot of fun along the way, and I think I just sort of honored my impulses. And when somebody offered me a job, if it was writing, if it was hosting, if it was a talking head show on whatever, it was doing a corporate gig, I just went after all of it. I was hungry and excited, and it, if it seemed like fun, I did it. But I think you have to, and you're a manager, so you know this more than I do. I think you need to have uh, a belief enough in yourself 
that you put yourself in the four seasons and that, you know, you take the hit financially sometimes to not do things that are going to take you off of a path that could really lead you to a place that you can look back on at the end of your career and say, even if I didn't make it, I really, I played it right. And I, you know, I, but I don't know that I ever had a clear vision of anything but stand up. I mean, stand up is the thing I wanted to do. It's what I continue to do. I'm leaving for Pittsburgh tomorrow. And, uh, you know, I think it's hard because the payoff with becoming a successful standup is that you're away a lot. And that, that has become a burden for me with kids. Um, so I would say if you, if you're a standup that's starting out, realize there's a lot of directions you can go in with it. Try to really get clear on which of those directions is right for you, works for your life. You've got the passion for, and then, um, and then really try to, not do things that are going to distract you from it and are going to make people associate you with like people don't think of me and go, Oh yeah, Greg Fitzsimmons, the writer. Oh yeah. Greg Fitzsimmons. They, they kind of know I do some stuff, but when you're casting something and you're the network executive, that's looking for the next host of the tonight show, my name doesn't come up on that list. And that's the thing that I think I ultimately really wanted was to host a late night talk show. And I haven't had that chance. And um, I don't know if I could have done things in a way that would have led me there if I'd really just said to my agents and managers, I just want to host things, do stand up, host things. I don't know. Um, I don't have regrets, but I do think um, comedians can be a little bit um, desperate. And I think, I, I think at times I've been desperate about doing things instead of uh, staying on track. Unbelievable. This has been so great. Undeniable, Greg Fitzsimmons. And let me tell you something. Your dad was nice. You're nice. I can guarantee you, your children will be nice. They're good kids. Thank you so much for doing this podcast. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Barry. I had a great time. Oh, I'm glad you did. And as always, if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show... Tell all your friends. This is Barry Katz with another episode of Industry Standard. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame you get all the money, drive that fancy car, all the people love you, cause you're going for, life is for the dreamers, they have all to gain, it's never quite over, till it all feels the same. You pick your own poison, dig your own grave down in the valley. A fortune. Fortune. 
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.